0: So here we are, the Brexit podcast, and we have Jonathan Davis.
1: Hi, I'm Jonathan Davis.
0: And we have Steve Wilkinson. Stephen Wilkinson, good afternoon. And Alistair MacLeod. Alistair MacLeod of Gold Money, hello. Great to have you here. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. Of course, we've got my co-host,
2: the one and only Tim Price. Hello. Hello, good evening and welcome.
0: Tim, what do you think about this, having such fantastic guests with us all in one room?
2: I am I am genuinely privileged. We are genuinely privileged. So thank you for, for all, all, all your attendance. It's absolutely
0: superb. And so and happy, happy Halloween to everybody. Happy Halloween.
2: I'm, I'm just gonna pull my Halloween cracker with Alistair first, if you don't mind. <laughs> there we go. You can see, see what good is lie inside. You won
1: that one. Okay. More 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 crackers. More cracking pulled. going on. More cracks more. are being pulled. Yeah. Oh, Great. Okay, it's Tim
2: and I may as well pull one ourselves. Movie prize, right, whatever is. Let me just get my. Oh, I don't know. There isn't anything in there. T- Tim's cheating, as always. Ah, oh, um, misfire. Oh, oh, like, oh, that's better. A Bit like Brexit. A bit like Brexit. Let's
0: get to the order of the day. The reason why we were having this podcast on this day was because we should have left.
2: We should have been celebrating the Britain's glorious departure from the uh, rancid EU, but it was not not to be.
0: So, what went wrong,
2: gentlemen? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what went wrong? <laughs> well, How I think...
2: We have we yeah, gone? have you got a
1: spare couple of days? <laughs> I, can, I can answer that one in about, in about half a minute. Basically, it all went wrong with Theresa May's election in, in 2017, basically, where we never actually got a chance for a majority government to try and take through a, a deal on Brexit. Now, whether or not she should have actually... Whoever was in charge should have uh, tried to work with other parties to come to some sensible compromise solution. Well, we've seen what happened... Since then, it seems pretty unlikely that would have worked. So essentially what went wrong was that Theresa May's disastrous election campaign in 2017 left her with a minority government, effectively, and inability to rule without the support of the DUP. And we've followed that saga ever since.
0: But Boris Johnson wanted to get us out and was doing a great job until
1: i wanted
3: to go back to um to the to the previous comment am i allowed to ask questions? am i allowed to ask questions of as course well? yeah do you think none of this would have happened or it wouldn't have played out the way it played out if either she hadn't called that election in 17 or whatever it was or is does is the fault within her would she have made a mess of it even if she
1: hadn't have had that election well, I think we've got some evidence we can we can try to answer that question, and the answer would be it's quite possible she might have made a mess of it anyway. What about this this topic
2: known as loser's consent? When when did it suddenly happen that our political class or a meaningful portion of our political class decided just not to accept the result of a legitimate plebiscite? When did that happen?
3: I suspect when they realized they could. And that was the day that the election results came out of that election that particularly disastrous election um my guess is that given the overall sentiment in the in the house prior to the um to that 2017 general election the moment they realized that the the majority that david cameron had put together had been dissipated um i think the hounds were out then
0: so, Alistair, you're looking at this and this turmoil at the moment and the uncertainty. What, what are you thinking? Are you thinking buy more gold? <laughs> well, always that, but that's a slightly separate subject. I think that's a broader
4: horizon you're talking it, about it, there. Is, is it really, though? Yeah, but can we just return to Brexit? I think that the die was cast when we failed to stay in the snake, the ERM, and we were kicked out uh, with the assistance of Mr Soros. So I'm going back a bit. But uh, ever since then, it has been absolutely clear to everybody that Britain is not suited to be part of Europe. De Gaulle had it right going way back when he said no. He didn't say no because he wanted uh, French to, you know, the, France to continue to be the superior country in Europe. No, he said no because he realised that um, us Anglo-Saxons actually weren't fitted for the European well, in those days, it was the EEC. And so it really, in my mind, it started then. The problem we have is that the establishment is so damn sleepy, they weren't aware of it. I'm talking about the, the British establishment. And uh, so they have been put to the test. And, of course, Theresa May and her cohorts were all part of the establishment. Boris is not. And that, I think, is our salvation. Now, the fact that we're not going out today, I don't think really matters. We now have a general election and I think, I mean, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about it because I think that Boris will get a majority probably in excess of 100. Not many people will agree with me. They're all very worried about the liberals and, you know, Corbyn getting in and all the rest of it. But actually, um, the only person with a positive message, and this is the time when a positive message is so, so vital, is Boris the rest of them are meany moaners. They are, quite frankly, appalling and obviously appalling to the electorate.
0: Well, it feels good to hear you say that because I, I always thought the best way not to get a Labour government or a Corbyn government is to not have an election in the first place. If we can get out without, without that. But how, how do you think things will develop from here? If there's a general election and the Conservatives get the majority you expect... What would happen? What would happen then? It's um, an
4: extremely good question. I think that um, obviously the, the Brexit thing will be negotiated. I don't take the negative view which some commentators have taken about Boris's deal. I mean, if I look at fishing, for example, um, that is meant to be sorted by I think it's the middle of, uh, of, of next year. This is assuming that Boris's deal goes through without any amendment. Now that being the case, we actually have the opportunity to say no. So we get our rights back. And I think that, um, actually, just a little bit of patience. It'll be 75% done, in effect. It's never totally done, of course it isn't. But it'll be 75% done. And I think we should be content with that. And um, as for Corbyn, I mean, I, when I look at Corbyn and Macdonald, I see the ghosts of um, the far left that, would around, that were around in 1979 and the British electorate. Chucked the Labour government out in that election, May 1979. Maggie Thatcher got elected. A bit of a wing and a prayer. I think Boris is probably going to get a bigger majority than she got then, which, if I remember, was around about 30 seats. Um, And he knows what, what he's doing. And his advisor, and I think this is an important thing, his advisor, Dominic Cummings, has a very, very clear idea of his strategy. And that is. Instead of spending 80% on process and 20% on the final objective, he wants to spend 80% on the final objective and only 20% on the process. Doing that actually means that um, public uh, spending um, targets can be cut while at the same time objectives are achieved. Big ask may be, but he's got all the spads under his control. And uh, all the ministers, anyone who wants to grandstand will be told in no certain <laughs> terms... You know, that's not the game. So I think we're going to see quite a revolution in process and the way government works under Boris and so on and so forth. And the great thing is that he does understand free markets. He has revealed that in his writing. And we need someone who actually, I mean, because I also think we're we're on the verge of a credit crisis, which will make Lehman look like a Tea Party. I mean, I really do think that. That being the case, we are seeing potentially the destruction of fiat currencies not guaranteed, could take a little while, but I think we're going to see a move in that direction. That being the case, we need to have someone in Downing Street who is supported maybe with people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who also understands free markets, who will ensure that all the um, pressures from the establishment are resisted and that beacon of free markets is still kept ahead of us. With regards
0: to Brexit, Tim, do you share the optimism that Alistair
4: has? I,
2: I wish I could. I it's just, I think for any true ardent Brexiteer, after three and a half years of this shit, you just get a bit tired.
0: <laughs> you had a definition of Brexit that you were telling us just before we yeah, came. Yeah, I'm, I'm
2: not, I'm not going to bother switching my phone back on, but it was it was a new definition, saying something along the lines of brexiting is uh, is when you announce that you're going to leave a party and then you just stubbornly stick around.
3: Do you think, or does this group think that? Cummings has had his bluff called. Because I think many of us were hoping that he had some Machiavellian. Some, some, cunning s- s- some cunning plan, some strategy that would outflank and and make null and void all these shenanigans that we've been witnessing over the past ninety days since the election of Boris. And before that too, but with with Cummings and his and his persona and the sort of myth that grew up around him there was always the feeling that maybe we would come out tonight and i'm still i still haven't given up a hundred percent that he, he's waiting for the last 10 minutes
2: to, before saying ah. i think i think you've now confused halloween with friday the 13th part <laughs> maybe,
1: maybe jonathan do you have a view on that uh, on mr cummings yes um, well i think he's he's injected as as uh, as has been said, he's injected some, some drive and clear thinking into the whole process, into what was becoming, as you say, desperate sludge for reasons that we can all understand. I mean, I'm not quite so optimistic about, about the outcome as, uh, as, as maybe uh, some others here. Um, but I think it's certainly a reasonable prospect that we will get a, we will, that Johnson will get a majority and he will be able to get Brexit done, as the phrase gets. There will be some form of Brexit. Then we've got all the other negotiations to go on and there'll be a lot of, a lot of backsliding and arguing about fishing and God knows what else. And that will drag on, and that is that is certainly true. And in two years' time, there'll be this issue about the transition, or 18 months, whatever it is, whether to extend the transition or not. So before we actually leave, we might have quite a long way to go. But I think it has, you know, Boris has demonstrated, first of all, that he could get a deal, and secondly, he's demonstrated, I think people will respond to the fact he has actually shown some leadership, Okay, even to the extent of throwing out the recalcitrant Tories, At least it's all part of the plan, the script, that uh, that Cummings has written. I think that's absolutely true. Whether Boris himself is actually in that camp is another issue altogether. And I'd have some doubts about that.
0: I, I just want to ask very quickly before you go to, go to that question. Um, if we're coming out, what is there not to be optimistic about? Because you said, I'm not as optimistic, but what, what would be the... What would be the, the, the I was downside. not
1: optimistic about the outcome of the election. Oh, I
0: always oh, see, I oh, see. Well, I think... Do I mean, you I go, think there's a greater risk that it might not be such
1: a majority? Well, it's not going to be a golden tomorrow, tomorrow kind of thing. No, of course not. There will be some adjustment. I think everybody says that. And, and if you're on one side, you talk about adjustments. If you talk on the other side, you say it's about negative consequences and so on. Um, but, I mean, I've always taken the view from the very beginning that uh, I rather took the view of Open Europe even before the, uh, the referendum, but actually, in the, in, the, in the actual real world, it's not going to make a huge amount of difference in the shorter or the or term. The longer term, may well make a big difference. In the shorter term, most people aren't even going to notice the difference. So there will be some short-term disruption, no doubt about that. I think we can't pretend there won't be. Uh, but longer term, yeah, I mean, it's a different world. And it's up to us to make of it what we can. The only caveat I would have is that I also grew up in the 1970s, uh, you know, before we went into Europe, before we went into the coal market. And we were known as the basket case of Europe. So you know, we didn't actually have a great uh, reputation then for doing things on our own. Different world, of course. We still had, we're getting rid of the empire. We had all sorts of issues to deal with. We had infrastructure to do and so on. So, I mean, I don't think you can automatically assume that because we leave, we get a golden golden future tomorrow. I don't think that'll happen. But I do think that on balance, uh, over time, we'll work out something which will leave us in reasonably good shape.
3: If I can add to that, Two things I'd like to get on the table. Number one is, um, Karl Popper wrote that, um, that optimism is a moral imperative of leadership. And I think people are absolutely fed up of this mealy-mouthed, non-committal, f- failure of vision. I mean, there are, we know what all these parliamentarians and the various parties, we know what they're against but i've heard nobody articulate a positive vision of where we could be apart from boris apart from boris and that manchester speech was just like a breath of fresh air in this doom and gloom and misery and self-flagellation which is which our political environment has become and it was and i don't know how long back you have to, to look before you found a leader with real Courage of conviction and visionary enthusiasm, um, but I thought that that Manchester speech was the start of a, of a whole new era of of politics. Now whether he delivers on it or not, and how how much of that he can turn around, and that depends on the majority that he has and on his the manifesto that he brings brings with him. But he's got the team to do it, and he's certainly got the leadership to do it. Did Charles Moore not say the other day Boris is fit for no job except the top one, mm. um, which I thought was a a great point and um, and he's got it i'm sure he'll do very well with it and the other thing that i would like to add to your point about what will happen next is that there is obviously a, <laughs> there's a lack of what what i would see as commercial negotiating savvy within the political environment they just don't know how to negotiate i mean any any sensible negotiating negotiating strategy has to include the option of going. Now, if you don't want to leave and if you want to sabotage it, then stopping that option is obviously a logical choice. But what it also ignores, and I think the commentary that I've been reading in the last couple of months has ignored, is the dramatic change that will happen if a government is in place with a working majority to leave. Because the European Union will then automatically switch to pragmatism I mean, I cannot, I cannot imagine that Germany, particularly Germany, but Germany and France, will continue to allow the European Union to effectively wage a guerrilla war against, um, against Britain in order to, to further undermine its parliamentary position. I, I just can't see that happening. So the moment that an, a leader is elected using the language that Boris has been using, which has been entirely conciliatory. I thought his speech on that Super Saturday or Stupid Saturday or whatever it was called was was the only statesmanlike speech in the entire proceedings and probably the only statesmanlike speech we've heard from that House for a very long time. And it was one of friendship and of conciliation and of collaboration of higher interests, and I thought that was exactly the spirit in which it needed to be engaged. Whether he believes that or not it's an entirely different matter, but he left the door open for a very pragmatic switch to a very pragmatic how are we going to make this work together.
2: I'm conscious that Alistair said something a little while ago that we we, we probably should revisit, which was a reference to potentially a a credit crisis that might make 2008 look like a vicarage tea party. On On that point, if I could just press you on that point, Alistair, and and the rest of the, the panel. Was that a specifically Eurozone potential phenomenon? Or were you thinking at a, at a more global level than that?
4: Well, I'm thinking on a global level. And uh, the dollar in particular, obviously, being the reserve currency, is of prime importance in this. But having said that, it needn't necessarily start in America. And I think it's likely to start in Europe. I mean, the German economy is the engine, if you like, the locomotive that pulls along all the other EU economies. And they have a banking system which is plainly failing. Mm. You've only got to look at the share prices of Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank to come to that conclusion. But the
2: entire Eurozone banking system is problematic. It's not just Germany. I admit Germany looks like the worst case. But Germany
4: Germany is particularly important because we have those two major banks, the largest banks, well, particularly Deutsche Bank, the largest bank in Europe, in um, obvious difficulties. And this is before the German economy goes into recession, and all the figures are pointing that way. Just imagine what happens when the losses start accumulating on their loans. I mean, we're, we're talking a matter of just a few months before Deutsche Bank potentially has to be rescued by the German government. Now, the reason this is important is that here we are, delaying Brexit yet again, and I sort of see... It's rather like one of those nightmares, you know, where you see sort of you're trying to get towards your objective and something is dragging you back all the time. You know, and what we don't want to have is a situation where the European economy sort of triggers a global credit crisis before we get out. We're going to have enough problems rescuing our own banks and some wise owl who knows about these things reckoned that, um, you know, we could potentially, if we were still in the EU, potentially we could end up with a bill of over 400 billion euros <coughs> just as our share of rescuing the euro banking system. And that's before we talk about our own banks who are bound to be affected on a counterparty basis. And um, I mean, d- don't get me wrong. I believe that um, Deutsche Bank and Commerce Bank will be nationalized all rescued by the German government. Um, I believe that similar actions will take place with other banks. So we'll have a situation where, effectively, we all perhaps heave a sigh of relief and say, well, thank God they've sort of recognised the problem and the banks are still open and we can you know, we can still access our deposits and all the rest of it. But um, going on from there, the amount of money that's got to be issued, both directly and also in the form of bank credit, to keep The government solvent, I think, then becomes the next issue. So we are on, actually, I I think, a very, very slippery monetary slope when it comes to this coming crisis, which, in my view, will be far larger than anything we saw at the time of Lehman.
2: I think I detected Stephen nodding with some vigour when Alison made the first point. Would you care to say something?
4: It wasn't quite
3: a vigorous nodding. It was a... I wanted to add something to that particular view of of the German system, which I know probably better than I know the UK system. Namely, that Germany is built up on three banking columns. Number one are the private banks, of which Commerzbank and Deutsche Bank are the only really remaining um, large banks in the system, the rest having been absorbed into one or other of those. The next lot of the Sparkassen, which are the regional savings banks who have the Landis who own the Landesbanken along with the local um, lender, the the, the the states, and then you've got the Genossenschaftsbanken system, which is the cooperative banks, and the
2: and they're they're like mutual, they're like building societies. They so are think. like the old building societies, yeah.
3: And and the the Sparkassen and the and the the um, cooperative banks supply industry, particularly the small and medium-sized companies in the Mittelstand, with something in the region of 85% of the liquidity that they need. And they are much, much better capitalized than than the the large banks that we're talking about. I have no idea what the fallout of of a liquidation of Deutsche Bank, which is looking more and more likely by the week, what That would be. I don't know how large its derivative portfolio is. What knock-on effects that would have? All I do know is that the um, the the German government or Germany within its sort of euro context has been misusing the banking system to supply capital to the various governments of the periphery um, in a way that they actually promised that they wouldn't do directly. And I suppose you could say they haven't done it directly, but the banking system has been abused for that purpose, um, buying bonds and, and credit notes from um, from other governments or government-controlled banks. Um, so I don't quite know where that would leave Germany if those two banks were to be liquidated or taken into receivership or turned into a bad bank. Um but I don't think I don't think that's where the crisis will start. It, it will be a Kreditanstalt type um, type of uh, default, um, a small bank somewhere in the periphery, Greece or in Italy, that will set this whole thing off. It usually
2: does. Tradition dictates that I inject my my old uh, hoary old joke here, which is uh, on the topic of Deutsche Bank. Don't mention the VAR, but uh, no one ever seems to appreciate that joke. So I suppose I should probably let
1: it let it die. You uh, have resurrected the game <laughs>
2: like, like Freddy Krueger, it's come back.
1: <laughs> well, I suppose I can't help pointing out there's a slight sort of contrast between the fact that we all think Boris is great because he's an optimist, and now we're heading for the worst credit crisis we've had for, you know, two generations. I mean, there may be a bit of a mismatch there. We may find we get into some problems which are nothing to do with Brexit at all, except indirectly, of course, but they are to do with the credit crisis. And, uh, well, it does seem, I mean, it's always been a concern ever since 2008 that, you know, we know how history deals with these things. And there was basically a clear choice about how we could deal with the credit crisis. Uh, and it was either going to end in a big bang, or it was going to end with some kind of inflating it away process. I mean, those are the only two real choices you have. That,
2: that's that's really gets to the heart of the problem, doesn't it? Because the, the whole bizarre thing about this has is, is been that the inflated away has been the solution, and yet we
1: don't appear to have any real inflation. Can't engineer it. Can't engineer it, exactly. So maybe... If if there is a solution, we haven't found it. If there isn't a solution, we're going to get the big bang anyway. So I mean, I agree with you to that extent. Okay. So there's but all crises, you know, I have this kind of idea that all crises end due to a failure of intellect and imagination. Basically, we can't. You know, the, the, the people who are in in power cannot find a solution. They need someone, you know, whether it's a Keynes when it was when he was around or somebody else come along to actually give them the ideas to navigate through a new set of circumstances. We don't have that. We've had lots of people coming up with, with crazy ideas and things like MMT and, or modern monetary theory. And this is a, is a kind of an attempt to find a solution to the problem that we've got, that we cannot find a way to inflate away the, uh, away the debt that we accumulated. So I do think at the moment, and I think what happened, you know, we haven't talked about the Fed and all that, what's happened in the last 12 months, but I think pretty clear to me that earlier this year, the central banks all around the world were sending up sort of distress signals Saying we don't want to deal with this problem, we really don't want to deal with this problem anymore.
2: And there's been a complete political vacuum on the other side of that. A
1: complete political vacuum on the other side, uh, worse than that in some cases. Uh, Reference to our friend in, in Washington, uh, who doesn't have a view other than you know, get interest rates down at all times. Um, yeah, so it's problematic. Sending up distress signals, and what's happened, there's been no response so far, uh, and they've just gone back into default mode. So we've gone back into you know, the Fed doing what the markets want and what and what President Trump wants.
0: So, so the That's U- not healthy. So the US equity markets seem to be holding up okay at the moment. So at, the equities are not flashing any negative signs right now. But that doesn't mean they, they won't in the future. But apart from the small caps, which are a problem, the small caps are not moving higher. The, the market is, it's not looking okay, but it's not saying that, it's, it's going to crash tomorrow. Is the issue not... I'm going to come back,
1: to no,
3: do, if, if I, I may. Like is, is the issue not that we have two massively conflicting um, tendencies at the same time that are... I wouldn't say they're cancelling each other out, but they are they are making
2: themselves apparent in different ways. We have a... Are you referring to that the markets want to deflate and central banks want to inflate? We have
3: deflation. I mean, we've got wage deflation due to China and China's dumping 750 million jobs at a 30th of the price of Western labor on the international labor market 20 years ago. And all the horrible things that have happened since then, um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we have a monetary policy that has been designed to counteract that and to finance the replacement income through the welfare system and through other activities um, that have led to huge increases in government um, government debt that we've just been talking about. But that inflation, the inflation that that has caused has happened in assets rather than in, in the real world. So we, have, we do have inflation. And We have it everywhere where the government has their fingers in the in the pie, and we have it in asset prices. And, then, and sorry to d-
2: interrupt you. Then the really awkward thing about that is that the the rich people's inflation, the inflation that benefits rich people, has made the social balance even worse. If you happen to be disenfranchised, but I
3: think that's the unsustainable bit. And what I don't know, and I don't I don't know any models that can predict that with any degree of accuracy, is. What causes it to tip in which direction? In other words, will this end up in a in a deflationary spiral or will it end up in an inflationary spiral or will it be first one and then a hyperinflation in the other direction? Because, I mean, the the question of whether this will end is moot. Of course it will end and it will end with a bang. It has to because there is no way that the inflation that we're looking for that will get us out of this mess is likely to come from 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 the economy. It has to come from somewhere. It's it's there somewhere else, but it's not coming from the economy and can't as long as those deflationary tendencies are as strong as they still are.
0: My my call for how this pans out was always deflation, then inflation, because through Tim's sort of writings and and, uh, podcast guests that we've had that talked about Austrian economics, it seems inevitable that the outcome for fiat currencies is that they will become worthless at some point and of course they can't all become worthless at the same time because you're looking at one currency again against another but the system is set up in the same way across the western world so we are looking at an unprecedented situation and if they the way i see it is when confidence goes people will start to sell assets. And as you quite rightly say, Steve, the, the, the markets have been driven by asset prices rising. and that, That's it. Shares are going up, not because companies are making more profits, but because they have an ability to borrow. And they're borrowing cheaply and buying back their own stock. And that's what's happening with Apple, say. They've, they've not increased their profits since 2015. But They have bought their own stock back, which therefore pushes the price up. We had Dave Column on the show, um, and he was saying that there's a percentage of S&P companies at this level of interest rate that can't afford to to sustain their debt. I mean, the Fed have just cut again and say they're not going to cut for the foreseeable future, which probably means they're going to cut again in December.
2: I'm trying to channel some one of the scariest quotes from from Mises, and I think it goes something along the lines of the the, the crisis is built on the sands of credit creation, and it must collapse. The only question is whether the the, the crisis ends sooner as the result of the abandonment of further credit creation, or whether it ends in the complete and total catastrophe of the currency system. Um, since it would appear that central banks have no particular wi- willingness to stop creating credit, it seems to me that the answer is therefore fairly clear, that you have ultimately a, a collapse in, the, in confidence in fiat currency. So one, of, so one of the potential remedies here would be to uh, return to a monetary system that's actually backed by something other than politicians' promises. It's um,
4: a confusing subject, this. Um, we mentioned price inflation earlier. If you look at independent estimates of price inflation in America, they're far higher than the official rates.
2: That's the shadow stat. That's the a shadow stats. stats.
4: It's shadow stats. And uh, there's another one also that clearly shows that the rate of inflation in America is closer to 10% than the 2% which the Fed is talking about. And if you look back over all the years since uh, the initial bounce after the Lehman crisis, it's been running at that sort of
0: rate all that time. If, if you include what? If you include asset prices? Or, no, 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 you're
4: just, just looking at the sort of things which the middle classes um, would buy um, in their normal day-to-day lives. And, you know, we're talking about what they would buy in the supermarket. Education, healthcare, yeah. consumer goods. Things like that, and, you know, even paying the gardeners to mow the lawn and that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, we're talking about practical things. Now, the fact of the matter is that you cannot measure the general level of prices, because where you spend your money is different from where I spend the money, my money and different where, from where Tim spends his money. So our experiences of price inflation are all completely different.
2: Uh, I spend my money exclusively on dodgy Halloween-based so I'm, I'm not <laughs> sure when anyone needs to worry about where, where I spend my money on. So can you give us a <laughs>
4: Halloween index? <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first, the first point I'd like to make. The second point I'd like to make is I think that The uh, use of the word deflation, I think, confuses the issue because um, you will have a tendency for bank credit to contract. Um, I don't think we have seen, more or less since the Napoleonic Wars, probably, a tendency for base money to contract. Um, So, you know, it's a relative thing. And we know that um, any signs that the economy is tanking, basically... The central bank will uh, get in there and produce as much money as possible. They will force the creation of bank credit, if only to finance government debt through QE, whatever, whatever. So I think, I think in a monetary sense, um, the term deflation actually just does not apply to our situation at all. So we have, um, if you like, statistics which conceal the true position. We have misdirection through um, poorly defined Um, statistics, if you like, Uh, poorly defined concepts. And in that, we're now trying to navigate our way through yet another credit crisis. You know, there's no doubt in my mind it, it it is due, it is probably overdue. Now, on top of that, I would also make another point. The situation today has some similarities with 1929. And um, at that time, the market peaked, I think, in September. But in the month of October alone, it fell 35% top to bottom. Why? Because on the 30th of October, at the end of a long period of credit expansion, the Smoot-Hawley tariff act was passed by Congress. And it was the combination of tariffs that were raised from 38% to 60% on average, plus the end of that credit crisis, credit cycle, the expansionary cycle of of, of credit that really hit the markets. And it was the combination of those two things that led to the depression and all that fallout. We have a similar situation today. We have had a far larger expansion of credit since the Lehman crisis. Admittedly, we have a lower level of expansion of um, uh, trade protectionism. Basically, it's a fight between America and China, the two largest economies on this this earth. And they're talking about something like, you know, whether it's 10 or 15 percent and, you know, it rumbles on, rumbles on. But the point is that if you put the two things together, you do have a trigger for something that will likely equate to what we saw in 1929 through into the early 1930s.
0: So you, do you think this could be imminent? You really... You think oh,
4: I do. I mean, I'm sitting here. I can, I can see the dynamics. One thing we don't know, of course, is the timing. And I see the statistics coming through. And surprise, surprise, every statistic that's coming through. First of all, it started with business surveys. Things are not looking quite so good. Oh, boy, you know, America, Germany, China, you name it, everywhere was saying the same thing. And now we're getting to the stage where the real statistics are beginning to go, come through. And they're not looking good either. They're rather confirming. And I, sus- I suspect if you actually get up to date with the current situation, because we're always looking backwards with these statistics, it is worse than we know is the case today. That, I think, is extremely important. I think we must understand that that is the real danger that we face.
3: You had a very interesting guest on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, Guido Hussman, who wrote a, a wonderful book. The Ethics of Money Production. The Ethics of Money Production, which doesn't sound like a page turner. <laughs> it, it,
2: it took me two years to pluck up the courage to read it, but I, one, one, once, once it was open, it was a, it was a real and a genuine, I have genuinely to, good read.
3: I have to admit um, that my view of what might happen is very much clouded and influenced by my feeling of what should happen, because I'm feeling... I'm, I have a very strong feeling that this is just not right. What is happening at the moment—that we have a the, the the morals and ethics of of prudence and sound stewardship and good leadership and and and, and service to the country—are being trashed, and that is not that shouldn't happen. So my my and, feeling and, and of not
2: only that, but that the entire market structure is that of a Potemkin market.
3: In, indeed, and and because I'm feeling ethically violated by all that's happening, um, that may be clouding my judgment. And may, because I, I I can't quite unpick, or if I were to deconstruct my own my own thinking, I'm not quite sure how much of it is should and how much of it is an attempt to be logical in face of the facts.
0: I. I share that sentiment completely i i the way i looked at it it's a bit like <clears throat> watching lance armstrong win all these tour de, tour de frances but then knowing that he's obviously been taking some form of enhancement and it's um if you were in the inside knowing that that was going on it's you 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 can't bet against the outcome because the outcome is that he's going to win but you know at some point it's it's unsustainable and that's how i see the economy it's been gamed the central bank is supposed to pull his, take away the punch bowl when things get too
2: hot But they're actually spiking the punch and ball. they're
0: spiking it and and they're they're extending the party and they've locked the door so you can't get out it's 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 just it's, cre- we're on to
1: carry now by the way everybody
0: <laughs> very good
1: for all your horror all so basically, horror basically, what you're saying is we're all feeling guilty. We need a good spanking, is what you're saying, basically. <laughs> that's right, basically. Well, I, you know, that's that's a point of view. I don't think Adam Smith would agree to that myself. But actually, I mean, I think we've got to be realistic about where we are. I think there has been complete failure at the policy level. And I think it's you can understand why it's been a very difficult world to navigate through. Uh, and if you are a politician, you know, you have to respond to the, what politicians do. But we have been lacking statesmanship. But I think it's also one other fact going on. I mean, we need to be clear. We're not... Just thinking about us folk in Europe, okay, or indeed in the States. I mean, there's three. Folk, th- folk in Europe, that's such an understatement. There's three, okay, there's, <laughs> let's just think about it. I mean, what's happening in America, what's happening in Europe, and what's happening over in Asia and so on. Where Asia, you know, if, you, if you're sitting in Asia as some, and I was talking to uh, a splendid fellow called Bruce Stout the other day, I don't know if you ever come across him, he, he manages a, quite a large investment trust called Murray International, which is a global equity income. Fun and he's and he's a very dour Dundonian who doesn't think well of anybody in the world essentially. You know, he's a, he's a rare, mis- rare amongst the Scots He's a miserable people. Scotsman, basically. Yeah, he's a miserable Scotsman. But he was saying <laughs> 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 gotta, gotta have him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> get him on the podcast. He's brilliant. He's he'll absolutely entertain you oh, for a whole hour. And he's brilliant. and he runs a very successful investment trust. So I, you know, let's not knock him. Um, but basically he was saying, you know, it's all very well. We're looking at what but go over to Asia and look at what the world looks like there despite what everybody said three or four years ago. You remember the Fragile Five or whatever it was and how all these these uh, countries like Turkey and so on were going to go to the dogs? Well, Turkey's not doing that well. But he was saying, if you, look at the, if you look at the emerging markets in general, or Asia in general, you're going to see a very different picture now. They've all got positive real interest rates. They've all got their, their banking systems are much better capitalized. They haven't got so much foreign currency exposure and so on. And we shouldn't neglect the fact that while we're worrying about what's going on over here, there is this fundamental shift of wealth and power from one, one side of the world to the other. And that is complicating the political response. One reason why we've been so uh, inadequate at responding to it is because there's two different things going on here. There's the general issue of the credit crisis and, and how to deal with that. But there's also the fact that we're losing, or at least we're losing relative ground against another part of the world, okay? And it's making it very difficult. If you are a politician in the UK or France, or indeed Trump, then you're responding to your electorate, for better or worse, Okay, so what you I think you might be saying is well actually we need some statesmen who are actually international statesmen rather than you know country centric statesmen because it's only going to we we haven't got anymore the mechanism to have a global solution to this I mean this is, this is what we've had there no there's no you know the post-war settlement has broken down there's no mechanism for having a global response to this crisis which is a global crisis rather than just a a local crisis. So I think we need to be kind of keep this in perspective. It doesn't doesn't change the outcome. As far as we're concerned, we're in big trouble. But I think we need to think about it more in a global sense, as well as just you know beating ourselves up and, and uh, you know spanking ourselves because our house price has gone up so much.
3: What what's the spanking? What do we, what are you
2: referring
1: to? i to take that off offline, uh, Jonathan. <laughs> spanking is is a, is a is a rhetorical phrase at this point. Uh, <laughs> What I mean is, because you were saying you 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 can't make up your mind between should and you know could or will happen, and you're saying that actually you feel because you think that everybody is messed up the way we manage this whole process that somehow we deserve to have a bad outcome. No, 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 no,
3: no. Then I then I was. No, no, then, um, That's not how I read it.
1: Um, Rose was saying it, it could happen because you said I I, you know, I feel it should happen because
3: I feel I feel that it should happen. I feel that. This economy—I don't know who referred to it as capitalism. This crony—I
2: hadn't heard. That's a good one. That one.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Capital,
3: no, that's capitalism. That's going to be the next
2: newsletter.
0: Um, You—that's yeah, oh, copyright
3: Steve oh, that's- <laughs> that we need—we need to have a return to a common sense. Yes. And—and um, and the and the rewarding of bad behavior or behavior that is inconsistent with with basic market and liberty ideals has to stop. And I would much prefer it to stop tomorrow because then if we we wait a year or two years or five years, the damage is going to be much, much more difficult to contain. It's going to be worse. And in, in business, as all of you know, if you see that there's a problem, you have to address it immediately. There isn't a single problem that I've ever come across in business that gets better by watching it for a bit and hoping that it's going to go, I mean, when we do have a serious problem, and I, I can't disagree with you at all, that the other half of the world, you know, the southern hemisphere, has all the growth potential in front of it that we now have behind us. But and I was hoping we would segue into China at some stage, I am really worried that we are, we are entering a new phase of, hostility, where China is now being called out on its outrageous behavior in terms of our welcoming it into the international community, expecting it to play by the rules. From the, from the speech that Mike Pence made last Thursday to the Hudson Institute, coming on the back of the speech he made exactly a year ago, read an awful lot like a declaration of war to me. I mean, it sounds as though America is now in a new phase of preparation or acceptance that it is at war with China.
2: This, this is something that Russell Napier's highlighted quite a bit over the last few months. And he's referred to the fact that he, he was recently on a business trip seeing institutional clients and institutional investors. And there was a great degree of confidence that that Trump would get a trade deal with China and that that would would benefit his re-election prospects. And Russell's perspective was entirely the opposite of that. He said, no, Trump's upping the ante with China on trade, on military, on technology, on currency, on on investment. And in his view, so this is is Russell Napier's perspective, not mine, but I happen to share it. Certainly it seems eminently plausible. On Russell's view, um, Trump had come to the conclusion that Going to war with China, it, it potentially even a hot war with China, would be a lot more beneficial to his re-election prospects than, than any kind of compromise. So that that kind of you know just reinforces the uh, you know, the message that you've just made. I think we
4: have to recognise that China and uh, America have been at financial war for some considerable time, and uh, if you look at what's been happening in Hong Kong, it's quite clear that that was provoked by the Americans. They changed the. Uh, American law so that they could tag Hong Kong on with China when it came to any action against China. Now, the reason that is important to America is America needs foreign capital flows. The last thing it wants to see is foreign capital going through Hong Kong into Shanghai Connect to finance, if you like, China's um, uh, infrastructure projects and uh, the further development of the two Silk Roads. So, You know, that is actually what is at stake. And on top of that, you've got China 2025, which is a um, a um, technology-based objective, uh, which is intended to further the um, technology, if you like, Chinese technology, which is already in many uh, aspects well ahead of America's. And America cannot stand it. It really does see China as a major, major opponent on the geopolitical stage. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, they're they're, they're going to make up over trade, forget
3: it. America is now coming to see, I don't think they've they've suddenly gone into this mode. I think they are now recognising the damage that has been done through 20 years of expecting China to somehow magically turn itself into a liberal democracy, which is the great conceit of the last 20, 30 years. I think it's the largest conceit of of our post-war philosophy in the West that somehow capitalism, market economy, sprinkles this magic dust onto the places that it touches and turns them into, um, into, into societies that look a lot like ours. And China has been playing a completely different game for 30 or 40 years. And America is only now coming to realise it, or there, at least there are people in the in or close to the administration who are getting a seat at the table to make that particular
0: point of view hurt. Does China not have a big problem if Europe and the US goes into recession, seeing as they make so many products for our, our well, use? Well, I,
4: I think... I think- one, one of us made the point earlier that, um, uh, you know, the banking system in uh, Asia, and I would include China in this, has a fundamental strength, which the rest of us don't. They've actually got savers. They've got real interest rates. Now, uh, the most rapid expansion of the quantity of money has been in China, and it's been all at the direction of the government. We know all that. But if the SH1T hits the fan, we're then asking the question, where is it going to hit? Now, I would... Um, personally think that the strength that China has is that something like 40% of people's earnings go into savings. So, you know, it actually has a sounder basis, even though it has expanded money considerably more rapidly than the rest of us do with no savings, no real savings whatsoever. So it's, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing. I mean, you know, it's like watching someone um, dying on the scaffold with full horrors. It will be interesting to an observer. Not that we would like to be there, but we are all there, unfortunately.
0: And in terms of looking around the world for investments, Tim.
2: Uh, well, all I can say is, I mean, I I, I appreciated uh, uh, John's observations about about Asia, um, and that have been followed up by the other panelists. We don't have any exposure to China at the moment, and I don't think it's ever likely to change in the near to medium term. But we've got a bucket load of exposure to Asia because it's the cheapest market in the world, and it's also the one that's growing the fastest. So it, it, from experience, the markets don't give you opportunities like this very often. But at the moment, let's let's call it sort of uh, uh, unconstrained value across Asia is is the most amazing opportunity I've seen in my professional career.
0: So if there is a big crisis um, in the next However long, six, twelve months. If it lasts two, two, three years, are you getting ready to buy more in those areas, or
2: conceivably? I mean, if the opportunity arises. So the, the way we've got our portfolios configured for, for our clients is is across three asset types. So value equity, which is always going to be our sort of uh, our sort of uh, bellwether, if that's not the necessarily the correct phrase, and then the other two component parts we allocate to are. Systematic trend following funds, so momentum uh, strategies and real assets, notably the monetary metals, gold and silver, the latter two, both of which we'd consider portfolio insurance. The more I listen to you know what I'm hearing today, the more I'm thinking we need even more portfolio insurance for what may be to come i i'm not I'm not any any cheerier about the outlook for the world or for you know, for geopolitics or for the economy or any of these things you have to be invested and in, you, you can't shelter in cash. One, one thing that the the post-08 experience has done is it's meant cash is basically now ir- functionally irrelevant as a as an asset class. So it's only use is as a source of liquidity and optionality for future investing. But uh, I'm minded of something someone, to, and to go back to um, Stephen's earlier point about the kind of morality of this, I'm minded of a remark that someone made during 2008 when... Which was the most scary period i've ever experienced in, in in my time in the business, and it was along the lines of i I'd, I'd raised the issue of let's say um, moral or what's the word um, the morality of, of 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 intervening to to support the banks and he said something about well there's no atheists in foxholes and you know in a shooting war you you worry about these things after the fact. I think there's a very grave danger that we may yet be faced with as, as Alistair alluded earlier. A, a and other gigantic banking financial crisis. And if the same strategy is deployed as was deployed the last time around, there's going to be a revolution.
0: I think 2007, really, for me, was when everything changed in terms of my outlook for banks. When, and, when,
2: uh, when the facade slipped, when the mask slipped.
0: Yeah, it's just the, the... People can make terrible mistakes. They can invest in the wrong products and it can risk the system. But when you see the, the the risk spread to the general public in a way that they don't probably fully understand, that for me is not not what capitalism was supposed to be. Capitalism is you you, you take a risk. If it wins, you make money. If it loses, you don't. And if it's an existential risk, then you've taken too much risk and that's, that's down to
2: you. The problem at the, the forthcoming election here is going to be that a whole generation of younger people have been successfully reared by... Uh, the, the long march through the institutions to believe that the, 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 what we have at the moment is capitalism as opposed to crapitalism or crony capitalism. And that's the real concern, because these you know, that cohort of younger voters is, is potentially going to make the difference.
1: Well, and we, you know, let's not rule out the fact that we might still get you know, we might still get Mr Tra- Tragic Grandpa, we might still get. We could actually get Corbyn. I mean, it's not impossible we get Corbyn. I wouldn't say it's, a, it's likely, but it's not impossible because there is an appetite. I mean, you know, his slogans, he's a slogan merchant, basically. He was never hopeless at doing anything, but he's actually very good at sloganising. Uh, and that's what his, you know, what his, what, his, what his thing is. And he's already gone out there with his message. It was all over the radio today, you know, vote for some real change, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we may get it, you know, and 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 young people, some young people may say, well, yeah, what have we got to lose? You know, we what do we got to lose? We can understand it, the world as it sees from their perspective, and of course the answer to that, in many cases, is well, what you got to lose is your is your parents' inheritance. Actually, when the house isn't worth anything anymore, <laughs> and so on. But it goes into different classes. But I mean, we we can't rule it out because in due course, failure, political failure, failure of leadership, failure of of ability to to, to handle complex situations does lead to bad outcomes, and, and in a sense, rightly so.
2: As you've plugged your fund, I'm going to plug <laughs> your book. I think you'll find I was plugging my, disc, my my bespoke discretionary wealth management service, Stephen, to be fair. A <laughs> um, fund is also available. <laughs> <laughs> VT price value portfolio. L-
3: looking at the truly great investors of the last century, they've all had a, a strong... Ethical core, all of them. They, they've all had
2: a. They've all bought into the. Would, would you include Buffett in that set of interest? I would. Even even today's Buffett, as today's Craft lions uh, Buffett.
3: Yeah, I think t- today's Buffett is um, today's Buffett is an enigma wrapped in a
2: <laughs>
3: Easter egg. Um, I, as an ex-course, very quickly, my own feeling is that the the. The investor Buffett, who has been very vocal on gold and that it's a useless asset and that there's no point in having it, is doing something very similar to building a gold portfolio. Very similar. What, what, what is he doing? Well, he's, he's building a, a fortress balance sheet stuffed with assets that are going to be valuable in a crisis. I mean, if you look at what he has, what will people need in a crisis that you would eventually swap your gold for. <laughs> right, for food, <laughs> electricity, railways. railways, transportation, infrastructure. He's gone a long way already to, to having, if you're going to have the economic equivalent of gold in assets, and I think it was Ben Graham that wrote an amazing book in, in the late 1930s called store of value looking at no storage and stability it was called have you have you, have you read
2: it i've heard of storage and stability Stourism,
3: yeah. it's a great but he looked at the gold standard and said is the gold standard fit for purpose is it is it something that we need in a complex modern economy and he came to the conclusion that it wasn't but that it it belonged into a basket of commodities and assets and if you deconstruct that today and look what buffett's doing then there's there are shadows of that within his entire organizational structure. So he doesn't need gold because he's got the stuff that you would have to swap gold for if you wanted to reestablish yourself afterwards,
2: and as Ch- as Charlie Munger has also said, he's you know he and he and Buffett are happy to ride out the inevitable mark to market drawdowns because you know they're long term investors. It'll be the the ultimate there's of Berkshire Hathaway that benefit from their acumen because obviously the, these guys aren't getting any younger.
0: Yeah. Alistair, what what do you you must have something to say about that? Yes, I do.
4: Uh, the way I've looked at uh, Buffett is that he buys assets that generates cash. It's actually as simple as that. And I think when it comes to gold policy, um, he is so large that he is an important member of the establishment. On that basis, he's not going to go against the establishment and start, start supporting gold, even though his father understood gold and believed that gold was the
0: ultimate sound money and he could explain why as a congressman. Now, that's fascinating. I've never heard anyone talk about Buffett's father. What... what... Without sort of getting Wikipedia out, can you tell us a bit about what his attitude is?
4: I can't tell you a lot, but I do know that Buffett's dad was a congressman and he was... Um, he was a sound money man. He was a
0: sound money man.
4: And, uh, um, you know, he, he uh, uh, consistently said that gold is sound money. Well, now, his son goes completely against it. Now, I can understand why... Um, now, if you ask me... what, what children did, do, basically. Well, no, wh- no, 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 no. Purely, I mean, he is now so much part of the establishment with his enormous company that he cannot go around upsetting, you know, the Fed, uh, the government by saying gold is better than the dollar, which is effectively what he would be saying I'd if he supported s- gold.
2: I seem to recall him writing a, an open letter thanking Uncle Sam for bailing out the banks whenever he, he did. So. There you go. There you go.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't believe he eats McDonald's every day and drinks Coke. I just don't believe I it. do, actually. You I do? Yeah. Really? <laughs> he does play the banjo.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've heard it. Yeah. So it must be true. I don't know if you caught the the Netflix documentary about Bill Gates, uh, which is absolutely brilliant. I loved it. But um, decoding Bill Gates inside the brain of uh, of, of Bill Gates, and um, you know, uh, the spoiler of it is that um, it builds up to him trying to solve problems with his money, and and so he's obviously not working at Microsoft anymore. And he just reads voraciously. He's got this bag that he takes off into a cabin. It's and a very just, funny bag, isn't it? Yes, it's hilarious. It's just really weird. But, you know, I've got so much respect for him now, having heard what what he's done. And um, there's two things that I what were very interesting about that. One is in every shot, almost, he's he's got a can of Coke, which I thought was very strange. And I can't believe he drinks that much Coke. And
2: well, the, it doesn't mean there's coke in the can. <laughs> but... <laughs> maybe, maybe or not. It could be coke in the can. Yes. You're talking about Buffett or Gates.
0: I'm talking about Bill Gates. And and the other the other thing was, well, of course they're friends and they've they've play, played play bridge yeah, together. And, and they played bridge together, absolutely. And they put their their money together to to solve these problems, which is you know a fantastic thing to do. Um, but the other thing from decoding uh, Bill Gates was that he's he's actually solved. Pretty much the energy crisis. He's he's found the spent uranium that's sort of building up in these huge tankers in America, and they are waste. They uh, there's nothing you can do with it other than chuck it into outer space and hope hope it just disappears. But he's with his money and his brain power, he has discovered a way to create a nuclear reactor. For those of you who have seen Chernobyl, will know a bit more about how nuclear reactors work, but this nuclear re- reactor is safe and it will just burn naturally without any outside cooling required, which is a a, a development that is so profound, so far... But thorium re- does that, doesn't it? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm really... I don't know enough about it, but I just know that he solved the problem. And, <laughs> and, what- and you can use it as a loo afterwards, can't you? <laughs>
2: I think quite a few people at Chernobyl used it as a lube while everything was kicking off, but that's a separate but, issue.
0: But um, and of course he he then has to turn to the Chinese to get the, the project off the ground, and because he can't make this nuclear reactor in the US, which is just jaw-droppingly stupid. And so I, I that that's one thing
2: I just can't get my head around. And he's he's he, I haven't seen the documentary, but he's also come pretty close to solving malaria hasn't he
0: yes yes that, that as well i mean there, there's a few things that I, I i didn't want to i didn't want to spoil it but it, it, it was that was the big thing at the end that it was just shocking that he's he's had to get the help help from the chinese to make these nuclear reactors and the the, the trade wars upended the whole process which is why aren't there any american companies just saying let's do it you know it's just incredible
3: it, it, <laughs> With the risk of going down a rabbit hole with the Warren Buffett, uh, with the um, Bill Gates documentary, it wasn't American companies that wouldn't allow it. It's the American energy lobby that doesn't want any new nuclear power stations built, irrespective of whether they're safe or not.
0: But that's that's to be fair, that's just bullshit, isn't it? I mean, that's just like it's a nuclear reactor is is they've got to differentiate between. Let's say we've got diesel cars that pollute the atmosphere. We know that. They produce NOx gases, and that's bad. But if you had a diesel-powered car that had nothing but water coming out of it, that's a completely different technology. So you're not comparing apples with apples. Everyone gets slightly worried about nuclear energy, and I can
1: understand that. But this is safe nuclear energy. So what we need is we need, we need a, a nuclear reactor that can destroy credit. That's really what we want. They want something that burns credit without having any side effects. Yeah. Come on, boffins, make it happen. And preferably done it in China as well. Absolutely. Well, you, you make a good point,
0: actually, from that. Why isn't the government spending money on doing projects like this instead of just
1: Well, they probably are money. spending money on projects like that, but well, they're, they're not spending enough. them on the wrong projects. That's, that's what governments tend to do. They spend them on the <laughs> wrong projects rather than the right projects.
0: Every country needs energy. Every country needs food. And if you're going to start writing checks, just write checks for energy and food.
1: Well, the German government decided it didn't want any more nuclear power, for example. And you think that would be in their self-interest, but they didn't want to do that. So, you know, governments don't always do logical things, do they? What what were you saying about that, Steve? Absolute madness. Uh, The
3: Germany was in shock, or the German industry, the, the, the utilities were in shock. Because this happened, what, a week, two weeks after um, Fukushima? Yeah. And it was a knee-jerk reaction from the Chancellor. She 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 has done this numerous times. She picks up some, some wave of emotion in Germany and then rides it. And she rides it, and even if it's only a very short wave, she will get her political surfboard. She'll put it on if she can outmaneuver one of the other two parties. It doesn't matter what she's committed to in her manifesto. It doesn't matter what what reason would dictate that a party calling itself a central market orientated party would support. She will ride it for very short term political advantage, just to put her marker out and confuse the other parties. And this is this this is what caused her to open the doors to um, a million migrants, um, which is which has been a disaster for the German political establishment because she saw a wave of sympathy after the drowning of the child in off Kos in uh, the island of Kos in Turkey, which was right on the front page and in the headlines of this, this awful, tragic scene of a, a young child drowned in the arms of a rescue worker, taking him off the beach. I mean, it, was, it was horrible. But it certainly wasn't the first child that had had a hideous end to their um, refugee journey to the to Europe Um, but she picked up on that the wave of sympathy and decided that she was going to do this so that she could outflank the SPD on their um, migration policy and to hell with the consequences and she's been
1: also I mean mean, Germany does have a demographic problem as well does it not or does it not? Maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it does. I, I believe it has a demographic.
3: Problem. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But I'm not sure that that's the answer. S-
2: solutions in terms of investment. So I've, I've, I've mentioned our process. Does
1: anyone wish to talk about their, their pet themes at the moment? Okay, I'm very happy to talk about that. Um, I mean, this has been a great year for me because I actually haven't had to do anything. So I like I like years and don't have to do anything because usually you make a decision; it's wrong. You know, you kind of, you've got to be.
0: Does that mean you've you've taken some investments and you've had to not touch? I them? did
1: some stuff last year, basically, before fortunately before and sort of during Q4 last year when, when I thought you know the things were maybe turning. The Fed was we still thought the Fed might be normalizing at that stage. Some of us did, some of us didn't. Some of us were far too perceptive to realize that they weren't going to do that. And that lasted about two weeks, and we had this terrible kind of market sell-off combination of things. So I actually took a lot of risk off the table then. I didn't, I didn't like a lot of other people this year I took a lot of risk off the table, and I haven't seen any reason to put much back on this year, to be honest, uh, because I think we have we're getting near to some sort of end game. I don't know what the end game is, whether it's short term, it's the recession, or whether it's some kind of credit crisis or whatever it is. It seems to me pretty clear that at this stage in the in the market cycle, you really don't want to be taking too much risk. So I've still got a lot of, lot of global equities, though. I mean, I think global equities rather than, you know, UK equities. Or, I haven't got much in the US. Um, I'm not, unlike most people, I'm not a particular gold bug myself, so I don't...
2: It's been a pleasure having you, John, and we have to... I know.
1: Time moves on. I know. I'm already at the door, by the way. For, and this is all to know that I'm being shunned already. I've been pushed towards the door because I don't... I'm not a great gold bug. Unclean. Unclean, indeed. Right. But... Um, I'm also actually interested. I mean, I have noticed first signs that maybe you know, I'm interested. have to say about this? You know, that maybe this whole kind of value growth thing is turning at last. Maybe we all thought that was going to happen two years ago. Or at least I think the consensus was it was going to happen two years ago. Um, I'm not quite sure why it would turn now, other than it's gone to such extremes. Okay, but it's interesting. If by which I mean, you know, a trend away from growth dominating the returns in the market, in equity market versus value. I think Adam Neumann at WeWork may have pulled it off all, all by himself. Well, that's possible. Indeed. Indeed. Um, but I think that's that's an interesting trend. If that happens, I mean, I've been watching that for a long time. Uh, my always approach is, well, I'm not going to change anything until I understand why, you know, what has what caused a change. Why, If the conditions that create a set of, um, you know, factor returns are there, you're not going to change it until those factor, those conditions change. And I'm not quite clear what the change is that actually might trigger a return from from growth to value investing. But I think that's a significant trend. So I'm pushing a little bit of money that way within the context, though, of a fairly conservative portfolio uh, without any gold. And so I'm looking forward to coming back in a year's time or two years' time and uh, being told what an idiot I am or what a, what a hero I am. I think it's going to be one of those two as far as gold is concerned.
0: Is there a level that gold... Well, what does gold have to do before you
1: take interest in it? Um, what does gold have to do? I'm not saying do? you have you, you need to, but what... what, what well, t- maybe
2: it's what central bankers have to do to get you interested in gold. Possibly that, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I have some sympathy with Buffett about this. I mean, you know, the normal question is what would it take for, you know, you to do something, you say, well, get somebody to pay me, you know. Well, gold doesn't pay me anything, so I'm not necessarily going to do that. Well, okay, I know that's... a and provocative statement in this company but anyway so i'm not too worried but i mean I'm, I'm i the other thing is you know the greatest thing about investing is don't suffer from fomo you know the fear of missing out just don't go just don't go there if you go there you're an emotional you're, you put your you put yourself at risk uh by allowing your emotions to take over so ignore fomo i don't care if gold goes with five thousand 000 right I still wouldn't so, so, so it. it's
0: not a level that it's not a level or a speed or anything like that so you're a bridge player. Does any of your bridge playing come into your investments?
1: Bridge playing? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Warren Buffett is a bridge player, though. Uh, I think I'm a better bridge player than he is. Really? He's a rather better investor than you're I thrown, am. So, you're you're thrown prepared, down. I'm prepared to concede on it. I think we know who our <laughs> next guest is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I'm prepared to concede, to concede on that one. Um, of course, bridge, well, bridge, the great thing about bridge, though, I mean, the great thing about bridge is that you're operating, rather like mathematics, you're operating in a closed system. A closed system. There's only 52 cards, right? They can only fall in so many ways. There's a lot of combinations they can fall in. But basically, it's a closed system. So if our friends over here have got X, have got the king of diamonds, I can't have the king of diamonds. Okay, there's no kind of, there's no inflation going on here. So we're living in a perfect gold standard world, if you like, where everything is finite and and therefore everything is logical and therefore everything is rational. So you just go with the probabilities. You try and work out what's going on. You go with the probabilities and then you stick with that, and that's the same way you should approach investing. I think, as far as I'm concerned, what I've learned over the years, anyway.
3: As you, as you know, my focus is small, medium-sized businesses, mostly private market businesses. Um, at the moment, I think we are being—I wouldn't say we're being paid to hold gold, but we are not being disincentivized to hold gold. The risk attenuating to. To holding currency in metal has disappeared with the um, with negligible to negative interest rates. There's no there is no risk to making a portfolio decision or a cash decision in and, and holding it in in, in precious metals. I, so so my given that I think we are in the latter half of the second half, if not in overtime, as far as... Fergie time. in Fergie, Fergie, ta- Fergie time. Fergie time in, uh, in credit markets, and that we are likely for some sort of correction, possibly turning into something more than a correction, um, as we've discussed here around this table, then the only logical thing to do is to hoard cash, it's not a risk if you believe that there is systemic risk in even in cash to then hold that in in gold coins gold bars or no,
2: no counterparty
3: risk um, no counterparty risk and 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 I love the, the phrase from uh, Simon Mikhailovich, who I think last year in an interview with Grant Williams said you cannot hedge s- risk systemic risk from within inside the system yes. I thought that was one of the most Profound statement That's a that great statement. It's a great statement, and it's a fa- fa- fabulous interview. So, given that, as an owner of businesses, I need to be in a position to play Federal Reserve to those businesses in a crisis. Now, I can either put gold in their balance sheets, which I'm doing, or I can hold it outside of their balance sheets, which I'm also doing. So that in a crisis, if there is one, um, the if it's a mild one. Then it'll be a profit crisis. So we may find businesses that have been previously profitable going into into loss. Now they need to be they need to be captured somehow. Um, gold won't do anything for me for that. Um, so it'll eat into it'll eat into shareholders' equity for that time. So it needs to be strong enough. And depending on how severe it is, we may need to add to that. To act as central reserve to the banks that, to, to the companies that we're managing. So that's the phase that I mean. I'm not actively looking for anything because I don't know where, I wouldn't know where to look at the moment. And my feeling is that there will be an opportunity within the next 24, 36 months, possibly sooner, um, to purchase productive assets at a much, much deeper price. And then we may get. Stock a stock market valuation, which will spew out hundreds of businesses trading below replacement value of their assets, um,
0: which is great. which would be great. So, do you ever feel as the market is going up? Do you ever look at it and think, do you do you feel like you want to get on board just because prices are rising? Does that ever enter into, are into you? Your, are you your...
2: calling Stephen a FOMO?
0: Well, no, but I'm just saying that you, you may have analysed a business and. Th- Thought no, that's too expensive. Oh, and, no, and, I'm, just, I'm, and just watch there, it. There have been
3: lots of times when we've, when I've had equities as I mean, well. And it's not as if i have taken some sort of celibacy vow. I'm not going to go into public market but I just can't see enough reason for going in there. Given the a how, given the portfolio at the moment, and secondly, given how many bargains there are in the small and medium sized market. You know, that's a, and that is completely irrespective. Of market conditions because in most countries in Western Europe, there is a generational change happening and there are there are bargains coming out every single day if you have a an informal network of advisors and tax account accountants and lawyers who are advising people who are now 75, maybe even 80 and don't have a successor for their business. it's amazing opportunity. Have you ever thought of creating a fund of these? No. One of the great joys of my life is that I don't have to deal with any excellent investors.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and, and on that
2: note...
4: <laughs>
0: on that note, over to the gold money expert. <laughs> well, I,
4: I think um, there are a few sort of misconceptions about gold. Firstly, gold, physical gold, is not an investment. It is money. And the second thing is that it does have an interest rate. If you look back to the time when gold was officially money, admittedly translated through sterling, the interest rate uh, really varied. The wholesale interest rate varied between about 2 and 3% with the occasional spike upwards when there was um, excess demand, if you like, for, for, for credit. Um, so I think if you look at a bar of gold, it's rather like having a pile of... Um, pound notes or whatever, the um, pile of notes doesn't earn you any interest, nor does a bar of gold. But you can put it to use. It is money. And I think that's the key thing. How, how do you put it to use? Well, you put it to use. Basically, you can, you can lend it um, through markets, but you've got to accept counterparty risk. You've got to factor that into your uh, equation. You can instead uh, buy gold-related investments like mines, uh, for example. An ETF would also be a gold-related investment, even though the ETF is holding physical gold. Because it's not the same as holding physical gold. What you're doing is you're trying to capture the movement of the price. Um, we, we treat it as money. It's as simple as that. Other people, like the World Gold Council, promote it as an investment. They reckon that this should be, you know, your portfolio should have 5%, 10%, whatever, and it enhances it. And they have all these wonderful models, which quite frankly is a load of rubbish. It is not an investment. It is a form of money. It is sound money. Now, the reason I would hold gold is that I would rather hold gold than paper currency. It's as simple as that. And I see it as a store of value. Um, which will uh, accrue um, its store of valueness over time. A very good example. I first went to India back in uh, 1967, 68, when the price of gold was around about 170 rupees it is now around about 100,000 rupees.
0: So 170 rupees, what would that be in sterling or dollars? Do you
4: in Ste- well, I mean, we were, about talking, about, we're, we're talking about $35 course, at the time, yes, yeah, yeah. roughly. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Um, and, but now it's about 100,000 rupees. Now, think of the wisdom of the ordinary farmer, the person who's got a couple of bazaar stalls, you know, in Bombay or Mumbai, as they now call it. You know, he's put his savings into gold. And the thing that's interesting is that, Those savings have ended up as bangles and necklaces on his wife. And it's it's the family pension fund. Now, if a son wants to spend some of it, he's got to persuade mum to part with it. it Not an easy task. (laughs) And this is why um, there is now so much very, very quiet hidden wealth in India. It is because they have this habit of um, using gold, if you like, as their pension fund because it is a store of value against a depreciating rupee. So I think that's the way you've got to look at it. It is money, it is not an investment. And what about the Chinese? Well, the Chinese um, have similarly done the same sort of thing, but there's there's a slight mixed message there. The vast bulk of Chinese private sector buying has been uh, in the form of jewelry, but again, it's sold on 24 carat basis related to the price. The margin, I think, is probably somewhere between 30 and 40% between bid and offer, as it were. Uh, And anything that um, uh, is sold into the market is turned into scrap and then re refined and then is sort of put out into the market in that form. The Chinese, uh, there's an interesting history here because the Chinese produced the regulations that appointed the People's Bank of China with the responsibility for uh, gold and silver back in 1983. Between 1983 and 1990, sorry, 2002, uh, the public were not allowed to buy gold or silver. And it was only in 2002 that they were allowed to do so. So you ask yourself the question why? And I think the most obvious answer is that China was secretly acquiring physical gold I think particularly physical gold. Silver they regard as more an industrial metal, even though it's handled by the PBOC. Um, And they must have got to the point where they felt that they had enough gold reserves um, uh, in order to allow the public to begin to buy it. Why would they allow the public to begin to buy it? Well, if you think about it, you've got 42 different ethnic groups in China. You have got the potential for real trouble if the Chinese government loses its control or alternatively, um, you know, the sort of moves towards democracy and so on and so forth. This is why they are absolutely clamped down on, on everything. But if people actually own some gold, they are less likely to revolt than if they don't own gold. And I think this is built into their strategy. But we go on from there because things have changed hugely. Now, firstly, I think that the Chinese, I've looked at the capital inflows as a result of the inward investment in the 1980s, and that was gradually replaced by a combination of inward investment continuing and then export surpluses developing. I reckon that the Chinese at contemporary prices, and bearing in mind that we had a massive bear market in gold, um, it's, uh, certainly until the year 2000, um, I think they could have easily have, have accumulated something in the order of 20,000 tonnes of gold. Now, I have no evidence that this is the case. I have a little bit of anecdotal... Sorry, em- on that
2: point, how would how would that compare with the, the US reserves?
4: Well, they, uh, officially, the US reserves are 8130 tonnes. So, odd would dwarf, tons. Would dwarf so it would dwarf that, yes. And, um, you know, there's some doubt as to the quality of that gold or whether it's really there and what the true figure is. Anyway, passing over that, um, we have a situation where China has since then embarked on a policy of controlling the global physical gold market. The Shanghai Gold Exchange is the largest gold exchange in the world. Through Hong Kong, they own uh, the London Metal Exchange, which is now doing futures um, uh, in, in, in gold, and uh, consequently, um, the, the it's, it's the Chinese banks, the the uh, IC, which, 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 the, the international, ICBC, yeah, 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 that one. Um, uh, they actually, I think, seem to be the big, big player in that market. So you can see that they're doing that, and also places like Dubai are tying into Shanghai contracts and you know yuan contracts and things like that. They actually now control the physical gold market. Around the world, which is a very interesting thing. Originally, they obviously saw that gold was money, and they believed what Marx told them, and that was that capitalist economies, with their currencies, would collapse. I mean, that's sort of in Marx. Mark, that's sort of in Marxian literature. So we have this interesting situation now. Since then, things have actually changed quite a lot, and I'm told by my contacts in China that if there is a currency. Um, event, let's call it that, then actually what the Chinese are likely to do is to go, I mean, they will go for silver, that is for sure, because silver has always been the poor man's money in China, not gold. Uh, But the other thing is that they will probably go fairly heavily into Bitcoin. And this, I think, the introduction of cryptocurrencies, and particularly Bitcoin, is a real game-changer Looking, you know, stepping back from China for a moment, I mean, if you just think what it has done to anyone under 40 living in places like California, you know, where this sort of stuff is, you know, grist to the mill, what it's done is it's educated people about the, the fault, the fallacies in um, state currency, the dangers of state currency, the dangers of systemic risk. They've understood this because they've been taught it through their ownership and their speculation in Bitcoin. So now you have a new population, and it's a sort of worldwide phenomenon, really, who are going to front run a collapse of currencies rather than react to it. Now, this is a very, very interesting and new development with unpredictable results.
0: Does that make you bullish yourself on Bitcoin then? Are you tempted to buy some? Uh,
4: Well, uh, I, I should declare that I own some Bitcoin. Um, and uh, Would you buy it at this level? I, I don't give investment advice. It's not advice, though. But, but personally, it, but, per, personally, but you, I think. Well, let me let me put it this way. I can see um, uh, on the relative dynamics in terms of the supply of Bitcoin, which has a cap of about twenty-one million, and it's currently around about eighteen million, and the supply of dollars, which I see. Increasing exponentially, particularly on a credit crisis, I can easily imagine a day when the Bitcoin price is well over $100,000 and possibly over a million dollars. Now, that doesn't tell us what the purchasing power of the dollar will be at that stage. But if you you think about it conceptually, you can see what is driving it. And also bear in mind that we've all got mobile phones. There's 7 billion people around the world. They're all sort of potential buyers of cryptocurrencies. And I think Bitcoin is probably the most secure one because nobody has actually hacked it. They've hacked individual um, operators in the system, but they haven't actually uh, corrupted the Bitcoin itself. So in terms of a bubble, if you like to think in those terms, it's going to knock the South Sea bubble into a cocked hat. Because for the South Sea bubble, you had to be able to get in a coach, risk the highwaymen, deliver gold to your broker or your jobber in London <laughs> and tell him to buy south sea shares so in other words uh, it, it was only really a bubble which uh, was enjoyed by uh, people Sorry. within within one day's coach ride of the centre of London mm-hmm. same was true true in paris though in yeah, With the Mississippi bubble, um, uh, John Law's bank did have branches, a few branches around the country in places like Lyon. So, but you can see the potential with everybody with a mobile phone thinking, I can buy this. And that is, I think, a very, very interesting change in the whole thing. Goodness knows what will happen with it. But I just see that this is something that could run and run and run and run.
0: I think subjects that have been raised today is something we could we could have everybody back on the podcast again to, to, to further expand. What do you think I'd be delighted to it'd be absolutely brilliant. Um, is there any any final thoughts you'd like to like to make?
3: This has been a very wide ranging conversation. It has, <laughs>
0: isn't it? For a Brexit podcast it really has, isn't it? Yeah, um, Spooky <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well Brexit isn't happening
3: Halloween is <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier that um There was a dichotomy between our optimism for Boris Johnson and his program that was Jonathan's um, mention yeah and uh, and the sort of doom and gloom scenario of of a of a credit crisis somewhere out there in the gloaming that we can't quite see yet if we're going if we are on the Titanic, then I'd rather have a happy captain. <laughs>
1: Beat, beat that. Beat
0: that. That's a mic. You could have thrown the mic down there. You could have dropped it. Okay. Well, you'd
1: rather have that than I'd rather have that than having a having a, a currency that's controlled by the Chinese. I have to say, I'm not particularly keen on that. But anyway, I think. I mean, I have to say that experience. You know, I've been around a long time, like all you gentlemen have, uh, and experience suggests that. The things that we expect to happen always do happen in the end, but they don't usually happen tomorrow. They usually happen sometime distant. In in the meantime, we can all be made to look very foolish, and I'm sure we made to be made to look very foolish again this time. And I certainly volunteer to be made to look foolish, uh, because I think actually things are. I I do think there's something trouble coming, uh, but actually I don't think it's going to come for another couple of years at least. Really, no, you never yeah. see the bullet that kills you. You never see the bullet that kills you. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I was feeling quite optimistic can... after what Steve said, but, no, no. <laughs> but
1: um, there's only needs to be one. I agree, there only needs to be one bullet, and uh, in the meantime, I want to enjoy the, you know, the number of years I got left. So I'm not going to be uh, going around looking for bullets, frankly.
0: I, I think we're all in agreement that something will happen. It's just a question of timing. It, the timing, the ti- yeah, the absolutely. But um, so just to wrap things up, um,
2: I'm, I'm going to wrap up now um, with, with my own last media pick, which is. The light's slowly fading here in in northwest uh, London. In North West London. Um, so I'm, my media pick is going to be a, a, a very very brief bit of Shakespeare from my favourite play, which is Macbeth. So it's... Uh, Light thickens and the crow makes wing to the rookie wood. Good things of day begin to droop and drowse, while night's black agents to their praise do rouse.
3: Got a book.
0: Oh, yeah, please. So, book pick from Stephen. Stealth War
3: by Brigadier General Robert Spalding, I think his name is, which is his take on the, the war between China and, and America that's currently upping. It's a superb read. Um, and he's a very knowledgeable man, having spent years, six years as an attache in, in China. Um, great lover of Chinese culture, Chinese people. but he said you have to make a distinction between that and the Communist Party that are running it for their own particular purpose. Um, it's a superb read.
4: Excellent. any, any others? A, a book pick. I think uh, for those that want to understand a little bit more about cryptocurrencies, safety Dean Amos with his the Bitcoin Standard. Right, And it's been translated into multiple languages already, and it's already a bestseller. But it it spends the first two thirds of it um, should be familiar to to all of us because uh, it explains Austrian economic theory. And then it goes on to explain Bitcoin and why it is likely to be regarded in future as money.
0: If you could only own gold or Bitcoin, which would you choose?
4: Gold, always. Right. Excellent. Because, you know, I mean, gold has a
0: 5,000-year history.
2: Yeah. 5,000-year-old bubble.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan, do you have a pick for us?
1: Well, I don't have anything of that gross importance. No, I don't, I'm afraid. I mean, I have what I have been reading, which I really enjoy, and I can't even remember the exact title, but you might have read it. It's, uh, it's called, um, what is it called? Is it called sort of Confessions of a Bookseller? Has anybody read it? Or a bookseller's diary by a guy called Sean Bethel. Who, uh, who runs a bookshop in Wicktown in uh, in Scotland uh, where they have an annual book fair uh, and it is the funniest book you'll read I mean if you want some light relief if you're worrying about you know the end of the world I do recommend this book it's absolutely hilarious it's about all the things that go on in this tiny bookshop in the middle of nowhere Brilliant. which is now and he does a lot of social media as well He puts up some very he gets these strange postcards from all over the world from from, from basically from <laughs> very crazy people and uh, I can highly recommend it as a bit of light relief after you've What's it called? I, mean, I can't that's why I can't remember. Uh, I'm trying to remember I've being caught on the hop here. The guy's name is Sean Bessel anyway, and it's we'll, called we'll something it. like Conventions of a Book of a Bookseller or Bookseller's Diary, something like that.
0: Well uh, we'll put we'll find it and put it in the show notes. Just before we started recording, um when Steve came in, he said that he'd bought your book and he thoroughly enjoyed it. i I hope I'm not putting words. In your mouth. So, if you if you could just give your book
1: a, pl- a plug, oh, I a okay. yeah, I give my you, own book a plug. Okay, well, if, if you just tell
0: us what the book is. So, <laughs> so, so then. it's
1: called it's called Templeton's Way with Money, and it's one of number books I've written about uh, successful investors and what they do and what makes them different. And this is about Sir John Templeton, who uh, who died about ten years ago at a great age. He also had that great gift of longevity, which is very helpful when you're if you want to be remembered as a great investor. Um, and it's about his methods. We went back. I was lucky enough to uh, to meet him. I, uh, I co-authored this book with a with a guy called Sandy Nairn. who used to work for him, uh, and we had access to quite a few of the memos that he'd written over the course of to his clients when he was managing clients' money as well as managing a fund. Uh, and we had access to those, and they're full of quite interesting uh, insights into his philosophy, how he actually went about investing money, and how he managed to keep it going over his extraordinary record over more than uh, sixty years. Uh, and I think there's a lot of stuff that is very um, that is very relevant to Jermaine still today. He was a very clear thinker, very clear writer. Uh, and extraordinarily, I mean, the one thing which I didn't know is that he did actually, he said basically, all I do is buy cheap stocks. You know, that's his great thing. He only bought stocks that look cheap on various measures. But he also, going back to where we are now, he had an uncanny knack for actually spotting the two or three really big turning points that happen in markets. So in 2000, he went heavily into, into bonds, which he never really owned before in a big way. He didn't, he didn't know exactly when the, the TMT bond was going to burst, but he knew it was going to burst. In, in the 1970s, he put a lot of money into, um, into Japan, uh, which turned out to be a very effective uh, defensive measure against the, the crisis we had in the 70s and so on. Uh, and so uh, my co and I, we spent a bit of time trying to work out you know, what, when he would think the next crisis was coming and what he would think about it now. Uh, but he would be concerned. Before he died, he wrote a rather interesting memo, um, which I can, uh, I can send you if you're yes. you want to look at that, yes, about amazing. what he thought was going to happen. Because uh, he sort of predicted the credit crisis, basically. Well, he, he really did predict it, essentially. Uh, and you might find that interesting to read.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, I just want to say a big thank you to all our guests. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. So um, just before we uh, we round everything off if you could just say how our listeners can contact you
1: okay i mean uh say so my name is jonathan davis i have been uh writing about markets for longer than most people have been alive but uh you can find out more about me at uh, my website is wwwindependent investor.com and you can find all my books and things there
3: thank you jonathan and steve steven Wilkinson. um Founder of a company called Good and Prosper. And if you have any interest in looking at that, together. And you've got a Twitter handle as well. I have. What is that? At
4: Good and Prosper. At Good and Prosper. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's just (laughs) difficult to remember that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Alistair McLeod, I'm head of research at Gold Money, and you'll find me at goldmoney.com. And I also have a Twitter handle. It's at McLeod
2: Finance. Fantastic. Tim. Tim Price, you all know me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was just going to say, if anyone wants to ask Tim Price, uh, please send a message via Tim's uh, Twitter feed, which I think is the best way to contact us, or leave a message on anchor.fm forward slash State of the Markets. It's been absolutely fantastic, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you to Tim and to everyone. And we hope to have you all back on the show very, very soon. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Happy Halloween. Happy Brexit. Thank you so much for listening to this Brexit special. Just a final note, we have recorded two podcasts that will be released very soon and they answer Millionaire Mentors and Joe Harris's questions. So don't think we've forgotten you. Those questions have been answered and we will be releasing those podcasts very soon. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.